Today we want to look at the fifth of the seven letters to the churches at Asia Minor, namely the letter to the church at Sardis. That communication is contained between verses 1 and 6 of chapter 3. So if you'll follow with me as I read the text of the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we've noted on previous occasions about these letters that they sometimes have a rhetorical or literary frame. And the the letter to the church at Sardis is no exception. You will notice the word name in verse 1 and the same Greek word in verse 5 occurs twice. Now there is an interesting juxtaposition there. The name that they have in verse 1 is not a particularly positive name. In fact, it's strongly negative. They claim to be alive, but they are in fact dead. They are counterfeit. This is a counterfeit name, namely the name of formalism and traditionalism. But the name in verse 5 is a positive attribute. It is the name of the, of the confession of the, of the Lord Jesus himself, and it is the name of the record of the book of life. Interestingly, there is another use of the word name, though the New American Standard does not translate it. The old King James does. It's in verse 4. The New American Standard in some versions in the margin reads the Greek literally, but you have a few people, as I read earlier, but the Greek actually says you have a few names in Sardis. What we then have is a kind of framing device in which the elect names are featured, that is, the few names who have not soiled their garments. It's an interesting structure, and it suggests the key focus upon the elect few who are faithful in Sardis, not the unelect majority who are dead though they claim to be alive. And there's a rhetorical irony. Do you not see it? He who is alive from the dead addresses this church, and he declares that they are dead while alive. The reverse paradigm, that is, they have not his life. They have not been raised from spiritual death, even though they are physically alive. Or we could simply say they have not been regenerated or born again. Now, this church is in a worse condition than the church at Ephesus, which begins the list of the addresses to the seven churches. The Ephesian church had lost its first love. It had taken on the second generation church syndrome. That is, it was coasting and cruising on the laurels of its past members, its old and dead members, its fathers and mothers gone, gone by, the first generation of the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> Having lost its first love, it had no love, of course, for Christ. It did have love for the traditions that were associated with the name of Christ, were associated with the traditions of the church of which they were a member, but they had no vital love for Christ himself. 
The church at Sardis is dead. With the exception of a few in verse 4, this church is like a corpse in the grave. Now, we've noticed that the titles by which Jesus addresses each of the seven churches recall titles of Christ in the first chapter of this book of Revelation. He reprises those phrases from chapter 1 as he addresses each of the churches. Now, in this case, the seven spirits is a repeat of his description in chapter 1, verse 4 that he possesses the seven spirits. The seven stars that are also in this first verse recalls verses 16 and 20 of chapter 1 in which he is described as holding the seven stars in his hand. Now, it is somewhat mysterious as to what the precise implication of the seven spirits and seven stars is But I will suggest that the seven spirits is equivalent to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit perfected in Christ as himself a possessor of the perfect fullness of the Holy Spirit. You recall that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him in his baptism. And he goes in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, back into heaven at his ascension. So this is in terms of his incarnate glorification. He has a full embodiment of the Holy Spirit himself as the God-man. I think that is perhaps what is being suggested here, and it is important in this context because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life, and this church is dead. So the fullness of the seven spirits, which is in Christ, is itself a testimony to the resurrection or regenerating life that is at work in Christ, what he possesses he gives, namely resurrection life from the fullness of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is as if, it is as if he is inviting them to address or to approach the Holy Spirit for their spiritual deadness. Now, the seven stars, as it also is used in chapter 1, is a reflection of the sovereign rule of Christ over the seven churches or those in the seven churches who are anticipating the book of life, which is mentioned here in chapter 3, verse 5, as an instance or a particular instance of that particular sovereignty, namely the sovereignty that he has over the churches with respect to life or death itself. Now, I'm not dogmatic about that explanation of the meaning of the title because the title does bewilder most of the commentators, but there is a stab at the dark in the dark to suggest how it fits in with the context of this letter to the church at Sardis. This sovereign spiritual or Holy Spirit power, might, majesty, stands over against the stench of death which hovers over the city of Sardis. If you will notice, as you read through these six verses, virtually every one of the six, which is addressed to this congregation, has a reference to or the implication of death dominating the city of Sardis and its church. Notice verse 1. They are explicitly told that they are dead. Many of them dead, the few accepted in verse 4. In verse 2, they are on the verge of death. In verse 3, the one who comes in stealth, the stealth of a thief, is the harbinger of death, even as the thief is a potential harbinger of death himself. Verse 4, the soiled garments are deeds with a consequent sentence of death. They are spotted and defiled. They are unto uncleanness and death. Verse 5, the name not written in the book of life is the name that is under the sentence of death. And verse 6, who does not hear or refuses to hear what the Holy Spirit speaks to this church, such a one is under the condemnation of death already. There is an emphatic death motif in this letter 
to the church at Sardis. Why? Why is this so dramatically underscored? Death at virtually every verse which turns its face upon us as we read it and see it before us. Well, the answer is historical and ecclesiastical. Let's begin with the historical answer. And we begin the historical answer with the geography of the city. The city of Sardis lay at the base of Mount Timolus. That's how that word is pronounced, Timolus. In the fertile valley of Hermas, in which a lower city and upper city were separated from one another by a 1,500-foot acropolis. Flowing through this valley, at the base of uh, this acropolis, was the Pactolus River. Now, I want you to try to envision what we've described. You have this mountain range behind the city. You have the city with a, a lower level population base near the river that flows through the valley. And then you have a 1,500-foot acropolis above that river valley on which sits an upper city and which was very highly decorated. There was a famous temple to Artemis there on that upper uh, acropolis. Well, why this difference between the lower city and the upper city? First of all, the river Pactolus. It was very fertile brought fertility to the valley, but it also brought riches because it had gold and silver beds from which coins were reputedly minted, first minted under Croesus, whose capital was was set, set here in Sardis in the 6th century BC, the capital of the Lydian Empire, which controlled Western uh, Asia Minor at that time. So, the Pactolus not only brought water for fertilization, for irrigation and for, uh, uh, for, for life, but it also brought the riches of Croesus's fabled treasure storehouses. Now, moving up from the valley floor to the top of the Acropolis, the unique thing about this Acropolis upon which the upper city was built is that it had three sheer side faces. The north, the west, and the east were sheer cliffs. The south side was craggy rocks, so craggy and rocky that they who lived on the top did not think that anyone could ever climb up the backside, the south side of the Acropolis and breach the city. And so they left that south side unguarded. They left the southern walls unguarded because of the apparent difficulty of climbing through the rocky crags up to the top. Yes, Randy. What is an Acropolis again? Yes, it's simply a level leveled off a plateau on which they erect all their buildings, particularly their uh, temples and their uh, baths and so on and so forth. It's a, high piece of land. it's a high piece of land, you know, very flat, and in this case, in their opinion, invulnerable, because it would have been walled and protected and guarded except for that southern face. Well, so much for thinking that you're impregnable. Sardis did not guard that southern face, but on two famous legendary occasions, Sardis was conquered by armies whose most venturesome soldiers scaled those craggy and rocky outcrops on the south side of that Acropolis and attacked the city by surprise, like thieves in the night. 
The first escapade came in 546 B.C. when the Persian soldiers of the army of Cyrus the Great climbed up to the unguarded walls and, like thieves in the night, plundered the treasures of King Croesus and his gold-rich citadel. But as if they hadn't learned their lesson the first time, it happened again, 300 years later. Second attack from the unguarded south occurred under the Syrian or Seleucid king Antiochus III, called the Great, who destroyed the citadel Acropolis in 214 B.C. The image of verse 3 would resonate with the citizens of Sardis because of the history of the Persian and Syrian conquests in the millennium, in the first millennium B.C. But I will mention one more surprise visit of death in Sardis's history. A devastating earthquake. In fact, Western Anatolia, Western Lydia, Western Asia Minor is a hotbed of earthquakes. A devastating earthquake struck the city of Sardis without warning in 17 AD, leveling its most famous temple of Artemis and so grieving the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar that he, that is Tiberius, offered money from the imperial treasury to help rebuild what he regarded as a lovely city. And in addition to offering them money out of the royal treasury, out of the imperial treasury, he canceled all their taxes for the next five years so that they could rebuild the city in its, to, to its previous glory. Now it is this <clears throat> rebuilt from the dead city to which the gospel of Christ came. Keep in mind, the gospel comes to this city with this lengthy tradition of having been destroyed unto death on numerous occasions. We've instanced three of them. Well, how did the gospel come to Sardis? There is no record of any evangelist. There is no record of any visit by any of the disciples or apostles. There's no record of any visit by the Apostle Paul, but in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, Paul indicates that his labors in Ephesus had borne fruit throughout all of Asia, that the word of God had been heard in Asia, which would include Sardis. So once again, as we have suggested, with respect to Pergamon and Thyatira, it is likely that those who heard Paul in Ephesus from these cities or villages, took the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ back to those uh, locations and began to gather persons who were interested in hearing about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who were appointed unto life heard and believed. But after the initial establishment of the church here, in the apostolic period, that is in the first generation of Christianity, the life and light of Sardis began to fade and spiritual decay, complacency, presumption, formalism, and traditionalism took the place of a vital, passionate faith and embrace of the new life, the resurrection life, found in Christ alone. In other words, the death motif which dominates the history of the city is replayed. It's replayed in the history of the church, tragically, sadly, but nonetheless factually. Our Lord Jesus Christ capitalizes on the socio-political history of the city of Sardis for the broader context of his remarks to the church at Sardis. The reverse images from the city's historical past, reverse from life to death, the reverse images are used by the Savior 
to characterize the church itself, a dead church in a once dead city. And that death, entering the body politic in the most unsuspecting and surprising deadly manner, spiritual death ecclesiastically as mirrored in physical death historically. Unsuspectingly and surprisingly, death enters that church as it had entered that city. Verse 2 issues an evangelical reverse call. Wake up. From the death stupor, wake up. From this near eternal death languor, wake up. Wake up lest you die eternally, everlastingly, permanently, immortally. You are spiritually dead now, Jesus is saying. Turn now from final everlasting death. Come to my life, he invites them. Possess my life. Trust my life. Love my life and you shall live now and forevermore. Wake up. Come to my life and ask for it. Receive it. Have faith in it. Live it. You shall then never die, either now or not yet. Now, this divine exhortation, this divine exhortation, wake up, comes from the divine exhorter, comes from the divine exhorter, Jesus himself, and is at the same time the divine and sovereign giver of what he exhorts. Christ, who has the power of an endless life, pleads for the awakening, and then by his Holy Spirit endowed regenerating grace, grants the awakening that he has exhorted and urged. He who has ears to hear, hear the exhortation, and flee to Christ the giver of what has been exhorted. Exhort, O Lord Jesus, and give what you exhort. Exhort us to wake up and give us the awakening. So, Jesus urges you to wake from the sleep of spiritual death. So, go to Christ, who is life for the dead, and begin with him a genuine penitence and contrition to give you his life for your death. O Lord, says the soul, you bid me wake up. O Lord, then I beseech you, give me that awakening. By your grace and mercy for this miserably dead in trespasses and sin soul. Command what you will, O Lord. But then you must give what you command. And I'm quoting Augustine there. The bedrock of grace. Grace which is required, but enabling grace which is supplied by the one who requires it. After all, we are totally disabled otherwise and impotent otherwise. Now you'll notice that word repent in verse 3. That is a call to reversal as well. Not only is the wake-up exhortation a call to reversal, but the word repent is a call to reversal. It is a summons to moral and doctrinal perfection. An about-face from the dead deeds or the dead works which has overcome the church at Sardis. Soul, repent, says the living Lord Jesus. And the soul cries, O Lord Jesus, give me a life of repentance. By the grace of your Holy Spirit. 
these appeals of Christ for an about face. Wake up. Repent. These appeals are the means by which he penetrates the consciousness and the heart and soul of the dead sinner to respond by the gift of his spirit. He gives what he asks. He is gracious as a giver. But I've cheated a little bit, and I acknowledge that. I haven't said anything about what is the cause of this deadness. What is the cause of this spiritual lifelessness in the congregation at Sardis? What is the source of this, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead? Where is it coming from? Well, where is it not coming from? Let's start with the via negativa, the negative way, the way of negation. The deadness does not appear to be the result of persecution. The spiritual dangers in Smyrna was imminent persecution. The spiritual danger in Pergamon was actual persecution, the death of Antipas. But that does not seem to be present in Sardis, for there's no mention of it. Nor does the spiritual death in Sardis appear to be the result of heresy or false doctrine, as with the Nicolaitan antinomians in Ephesus and Pergamon and the wicked Jezebel in Thyatira. In other words, it's not a deficiency of doctrine or false teaching or heretical inroads. At least it doesn't appear to be. Nothing's mentioned. It's explicit in those cases where that is the explicit issue. Not here. Well, while no specific cause is given, there's a clue. The clue in the language of verse 4. Some in this church, perhaps the majority in this church, in distinction from the godly few, verse 4, some in this church have soiled their garments. Soiled their garments. This may be a euphemism for corrupt immorality such as the fornication invading the church at Pergamon and Thyatira. It may. Or it may be more general. The soiling or uncleanness that all sin brings to one's character, one's soul, one's heart. It is besmirched and soiled by the stain of sin. In addition, or alongside this unclean moral soiling, is the realization that the majority of this church are not, notice the text, walking with me. They are not walking in the paths of the risen, holy Lord Jesus Christ. Well, with whom are they walking then? You're not walking with me, notice that antithetical negative, then with whom are they walking? Undoubtedly, in my opinion, this fourth verse is strongly suggesting that the majority of the church at Sardis is at home in its Greco-Roman pagan environment and is following in the ways of that pagan morality and influence. We cannot take the paganism out of Sardis in this second generation Christian era. It pervades the social, political, and even the religious environment. It is pervasive. It is the breath of those cities. Greco, Roman, paganism, heathenism. In Sardis, they have succumbed to compromise with it. Ever base abandonment 
of the moral and ethical values of the kingdom of heaven. They are not walking with me. They are walking with the culture. They are walking with their environment. They are walking with the antithesis of walking with me. That's pagan moral precepts, pagan moral customs. That's pagan moral ethics. Not only do they not walk in accordance with the ethical values of the kingdom of heaven, they reject the ethical values of the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And they even deny the natural light of conscience. That is, they pursue sins against nature. This is paganism raw and out front. So accommodating have they become in Sardis that though they bear the name of Christ formally and nominally, they are dead to Christ and lifeless to the morals of God's environment, lifeless to the morals of God's kingdom, lifeless to the morals of God's own character, and they wear the death shroud of pagan customs, pagan morals, and pagan devotion. Paganism lusts after the death wish. And wherever you see that dominant death wish invading a culture or a society, you can know that it is the very antithesis of Christianity. It is paganism rising itself again from its old deathbed. In Sardis, the church had capitulated to the pagan death wish. But there are a few. There are a few who have not been corrupted, nor stained, soiled, and besmirched with the works of sin, guilt, impurity, and spiritual death. These are Christ's faithful remnant in Sardis, his genuine sons and servants, sons and daughters. These few walk in the ways of Christ. They tread the narrow path of the kingdom of heaven. They walk with me, Jesus says in verse 4. They walk with me because I first walked with them. They are my walking with me companions. I am to them Emmanuel, God with them, as they walk and confess me, my Lord and my God. We together, they and me, we are a mirror image, a reflection. I in them they in me, I walking with them, they walking with me. This reciprocal mirror relationship is sweet walking, mutual fellowship in the same paths of righteousness, that narrow path that leads unto the kingdom of God. There are those, those few walk with me because I delighted to walk first with them. Allah Enoch of the Old Testament, Genesis 5, said of Enoch that he walked with God because God first condescended to walk with Enoch. Now notice what else Jesus says in that fourth verse. He says they are worthy. These few who walk with him are worthy. That strikes us as a little odd sometimes. How are they worthy? Well, the simple answer is because Christ is worthy. They are worthy because Christ is worthy on their behalf. There's no worthiness in them by nature. There's only worthiness in them by grace. By my grace, Jesus says. By my grace which I bestow on them 
as a gift. My worthiness I gift to them. My deserving I grant to them. My meriting I put to their account. So that all of their worthiness is derivative. Not earned, not inherent, not self-earned, self-deserved, or self-merited. And they even confess as much. They even say so. Because what do they say about me? They say, worthy is the lamb. That's what they say. They don't say, worthy am I. They say, worthy is the lamb. But I will give them the dignity of the worthiness that is in me. I graciously will bestow upon them the same label that is bestowed upon me because it reflects my all-worthy person and work in their worthy person and work in and through me and me alone. Let the worthiness derive from what the rest of this book of Revelation says several times. Worthy is the Lamb who sitteth upon the throne. All right, we'll pause there for a few minutes to take your break, and then we'll return to take up some of the other imagery uh, in this epistle. And Reba, you have a question. Go ahead. take them one at a time, all right? Let me start with the one that you asked there last. Why these seven churches? Uh, They appear to have been on a circuit. If you have your map, you remember your map, you begin in Ephesus and then you go north and you come down south to Laodicea. Uh, Three of those locations are mentioned in the New Testament, Ephesus, Laodicea and Colossae, because Colossae is near Laodicea. The others are not mentioned, but they may have very well been on a kind of ecclesiastical circuit. It may have been a circuit that John himself, while he was bishop, as they they say by tradition, or while he was minister in Ephesus for a while, he may have taken that circuit and visited those churches. That may be one of the reasons he is the one that has given these revelations, because he knew them in some in some manner. Now, I admit that that is speculation on my part, and I cannot confirm that, but that is a reasonable explanation of why these seven churches have been chosen, because they are kind of the center of the Christian testimony in Central Asia Minor. I guess what I'm looking at is, or wondering, is there's a, that Jesus has something to say, so... Picking these churches are sort of a, a stage to say it. He has something to say to all the church. And it seems like, I, I'm just wondering. There is a peculiar issue with respect to each of the churches. As we pointed out when we talk about the narrative character of the book of Revelation, there is an interface between the church triumphant and the church militant. That is, there is an interface between the not-yet-church in its glory and the church on earth as it's pursuing its struggles and, and con- conflicts with the world. <clears throat> and I think that there's a, there's a general quality, in this case, a challenge to examine the life-or-death status of the church itself. That is a, that is a challenge which the, <clears throat> the, the glorified church in heaven has already passed through and endured, it is an ongoing struggle for the church, and so it is an issue 
which the ch Christian church faces even 20 centuries after Christ's resurrection. So these are different churches having different issues that we can say, okay. That, that, is, that is a way of... of of examining why there's a particularity about each of the seven. Yes. Now, your first question was... It seems like their issues are sort of tied to the communities they're in. They're tied to the history of their community, that's right. In other words, he is capitalizing on historical context, and he's using that to illustrate the spiritual dynamic. Here, the spiritual death of Sardis in relationship to the physical death of the city through at least two instances in its history. So he's, <clears throat> that, that is a standard uh, observation on the principle of hermeneutic interpreting these seven letters. That is, what is the historical context of the individual city and how does that illustrate itself in what Jesus addresses to the church in that city? And now you had a third one, I believe. Apparent decline in five of the seven. There's no apparent decline in Smyrna, the second one, nor in Philadelphia, which is the next one that we will examine. However, there is a slight edge of warning in Philadelphia that is not present in Smyrna. <clears throat> um, there, there are issues of those cities which, of course, reflect upon their need to, to be vigilant, but there is no, <clears throat> uh, there's no apparent general decline in two out of the seven. Now, the, the decline is part of this influx of capitulation to the culture which is around them, the pagan Greco-Roman culture. And that is a threat to the church in every generation. Capitulation and compromise with the prevailing non-Christian culture. Yes. Yes. And then the comment that I have is I've been reading Calvin on faith, and he was talking about the difference between believing but not believing unto faith. That there are those who are believing enough that it, it seems like in Sardis it's sort of like, okay, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, let's get on with our lives, guys. And then there's the few who are believing, have believed in faith. Um, yeah, I would have to check the context of what Calvin's coming on to, to apply that to this, if it's applicable at all. But there is, a, there is a, there's a general faith that even the devils have, which is not true faith at all. <clears throat> and that's what he says, it's not true faith. It's just a if he's saying it's not, if it's not true faith then that it is faith only in name, but it is not faith in reality. Okay. Oh, here. I had Cheryl. one thought, just one thought. Seems to be that there's a little bit of complacency in Sardis. I mean, they're, they're in the culture, but they're kind of like, well, it's still going to be here when, if I want to come back. Yes. Complacency is an issue with uh, nominal Christianity, yes. Okay. All right, we're still uh, commenting on verse 4, where Jesus notes that these few, whom we've described as the elect few, <clears throat> walk together with him in white garments. As the risen Christ is dressed in radiant white robes, so he grants his redeemed sons and daughters to be clothed in spotless white garments. See how... Generous, how lavishly generous 
he is. What he has cleansed spotless and white from the stains of the sins he bore on the cross, he now dresses his saints with, his believing people with, his faithful children dressed as he is, clothed in white, the white of the Lamb of God, sinless, no blot or stain, no guilt or condemnation, no black spot or mark upon them, as there is no black spot or mark upon their Lord, the Savior Jesus the Christ. Now we need to take some time on the much debated phrase in verse 5, I will not erase his name from the book of life. This phrase is often interpreted to mean that a person's name can be recorded in the heavenly or divine book of life, and that person may subsequently do something sinful so that his or her name will be removed, erased, purged, crossed out of the Lamb's book of life. Such an interpretation would fuel the notion that the endurance and perseverance in salvation is in the power of the creature. In particular, it is in the power of the sinful creature. This interpretation would make Christ the servant of the all-deficient sinner, not the sinner the servant of the all-sufficient Savior. Let me repeat that. Such an interpretation would make Christ the servant of the all-deficient sinner, not the sinner the servant of the all-sufficient Savior. To say that a sinner's act could remove his or her name from the book of life is to say that his or her name was never in the book of life in the first place. For no sinner by birth has his or or her name entered in the book of life by birth, Every sinner's name is recorded in the book of death. The wages of sin is death. Only those who are born again are listed in the book of life. Only those whom Christ first loved and brought with him through death to sin and resurrection to new life in him, only these have names in the Lamb's book of life. You love me because I first loved you. Our love moves concurrently. My love for you effects, produces, or causes your love for me. I'm the chief agent of your salvation. You died to the guilt and punishment of sin because I first died on the cross for the guilt and punishment of the sin I bore. We are dead to sin concurrently. My death to sin effects, E-F-F, effects your death to sin. It is the effective cause of your death to sin. You were born again to new life because I first was born again to new life by resurrection from the dead. We are born again to new life concurrently. My resurrection new life effects your new life resurrection from the dead. You see what I'm doing? I'm plugging you into the drama of the history of redemption. I'm plugging you into the acts of Christ on behalf of you who believe on him in true sincerity. There is no abstraction about this. This is concrete historical Redemption. It is saving the, the sinful nature in the historical arena in which it was condemned and damned. It has to be reversed. And that's the reason the Redeemer comes into history. That's the reason for the incarnation. That's the reason for the divine nature and the human nature being joined together in Christ in one person. It's absolutely essential. No abstract mystical Christ can save because he's not historical. He's a fable. He's an illusion. The Jesus of history is the Jesus who redeems historical persons in history. 
you have eternal life because I first had eternal life and gave it to you as a gift of grace by the work of my Holy Spirit. Our eternal life moves concurrently. My eternal life effects eternal life for you. He draws your attention away from yourself unto himself. He draws you into the drama of all of his historical experiences. What you call the plan of salvation. He plants you in the midst of it. As he's planted in the midst of it. If it didn't happen to him first, it can't happen to you next. Because it happened to him first, it can happen to you again. Over and over. Renewed. Restimulated. Refreshed. Rejoice. And so we come to the book of life. Your name is entered in my book of life because I first inscribed your name there from before the foundation of the world. Our names in the book of life move concurrently. My name in the book of life effects your name in the book of life. Because I am there, and you belong to me, you are there with me. No, this is not, this phrase, will not erase his name out of the book of life. This is not a declaration of the possibility of falling from eternal grace. It is a statement of assurance It is a statement of precious assurance that those saved by divine grace will never be erased from the book of life. No matter the trials, no matter the persecutions, no matter the hardships of oppressive culture, no matter the illness, no matter the weakness, no matter the faults, no matter the sins unto repentance from sin, no matter of those, of any of those factors, Will it cause you to be erased from the book of life? This is a precious promise from Christ himself. Your name, you who are saved by grace through faith, you who have by grace been given repentance and reversal from your works from the paths of destruction, repenting to the paths of everlasting life, you I love, and I will never blot your name from that book of eternal life. Your name is you belong to me. You could no more be erased from the book of life than I could. Ponder that for a moment. Can the name of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, resurrected unto eternal life, can the name of the Son of God be erased from the book of life? To say it is is obviously to give the answer. It would be an absurdity to think that that was possible. Then it is no more possible for you who belong to him to be erased from the book of life than it is for him to be erased from the book of life. My life is certain and assured. I have eternal life certainly and assuredly. I cannot be removed from that eternal life. It cannot be removed from me. I have brought you into the same relation, a mirror reflection of my life, certain and assured. Be certain, therefore, I assure you, I have the book of life in my hand, and I will never erase you from that eternal gift that I possess and you possess in me. Never will I do that. I would have to deny myself and erase myself as well. Reba, you had your hand up. He's in the book of life. He holds it in his hand and his name is the first one on the, on the, on the register. Because he gained, he gained eternal life by coming into history and suffering the condemnation of sin. He was under a sentence of eternal condemnation. His father turned his back on him. He abandoned him in that moment. Having satisfied that condemnation, Having descended into hell in that sense, 
He paid that off and he himself was rewarded by being given the gift of eternal life in his incarnate being. So he's earned it on our behalf, therefore his name is on that register as well. Randy. Does that fit with Luther's statement, fear God is sin boldly? No. Luther's on the edge of antinomianism with that statement. He's on the edge. Uh, is that consistent with Luther's comment, fear God and sin boldly? It's a famous quotation that, that Luther made. <clears throat> he, was, he was talking out of, his, uh, <clears throat> out of his sense of liberty as a result of the gospel. And he overstated the, uh, <clears throat> the issue a little bit. As I say, he's on the edge of antinomianism. You fear God and you don't sin boldly at all. You sin with fear in your heart. You fear God and fear sin. So uh, Luther is prone to these uh, extreme uh, hyperboles and and sometimes some uh, actually downright stupid statements. So, so, so it reminds us that all all professional theologians of whom I am one make stupid statements, and you need to be aware. That uh, you're judged by the word of God, you don't judge by our stupid statements. Reba, you had your hand up. Just another question. Is the, is the, I noticed the tree of life in Genesis and the book of life, are they similar images? Yeah, they're, they're images of eternal life, right. They're images of that which belongs for eternity. The tree of life recurs in the book of Revelation, incidentally. Now, having said this about this fact, this phrase being a bastion of assurance and uh, encouragement, that you may be assured and encouraged even the more. How precious you are to me, says the Lord Jesus. Notice what he says. I will confess your name before my Father and his angels in heaven. Your name in my book of life, I will present your name to my Father in the presence of his heavenly angelic company. Do not fear or despair. You are mine by name. I call my sheep by name. In the register of life eternal and in the assembly of my Father in heaven, I will profess you. You will be named by me. You will be named by Jesus. He knows your name. And he will name you as his own. You have confessed me before men. I assure you. I assure you that I will confess you before my Father in heaven. You wear my name because I bear yours before the throne of heaven. Go forth rejoicing. Believing and trusting. Let's pray. Father, we grieve at the sorrow of death that is upon this ancient congregation. But we rejoice in the life that is upon your son. Even on behalf of those few in that congregation who understood and had embraced it because he had embraced them. We are debtors, O Lord, to your sovereign grace. And we are debtors even more to the winner and achiever of that sovereign grace, namely Christ Jesus, your Son. We treasure him above all else, and we pray, O Lord, that even in this exercise, we may be drawn closer to him as he has borne our curse. He has borne our death. He has borne our soiled garments. He has cleansed us and purified us by his own spotless and precious blood, washing his blood-stained season, his robes in the blood-stained sin blood of the cross. 
Lord Jesus, please hear us as we cry out to you. Keep us faithful. Enable us to be, to be, to persevere in righteousness. Let us endure for your name's sake. You who bear your, our names upon your own book held in your precious hand, book of everlasting life. We thank you in your precious name. Amen.